All right, so today is lecture three, and uh, there's not, it's fairly brief, two, two sections of the Confession of Faith. Um, everybody has their notes. So this is a, um, the Confession of Faith is what our church said, the founders of our church said they believed at the time that the church was founded. They, they adopted these things. There is some overlap in our doctrinal statement. With other Christian, with other Christian groups, uh, we 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 share a lot. There's a lot of common things. Uh, sometimes in Christianity, you'll you'll hear re reference to the fundamentals, and there's there's five fundamentals. It's the virgin birth of Christ, the uh, the literal blood atonement, um, literal blood atonement. It's the bodily resurrection. Of Christ, the uh, inspiration of the scriptures, and the literal second coming. The literal blood atonement. Christ literally shed his blood for a reason. It wasn't just academic. Uh, this, this list of the fundamentals, however, this is what's accepted now. In the early iterations of the fundamentals of Christian faith, it's called the Niagara Bible Conference. Um, so Winona Lake, Indiana, they had a list of about 15 fundamentals, but then they shrunk it down uh, to five. And the reason they shrunk it down to five was because fundamentalism, that is Bible-believing Christianity, uh, was ecumenical. It was non-denominational. There were Baptist fundamentalists, Methodist fundamentalists, Presbyterian fundamentalists, Anglican fundamentalists. It was pretty broad. And so congregational fundamentalists. And so they, they narrowed it down. So it didn't focus on ecclesiology as, as much, more just the general bullet points of Christianity, which they, all, they were all coming together to fight a common enemy called liberalism. Each one of those fundamentals was because the liberals were teaching something different. Liberalism came into the American churches between 1870 and, 19, 1870 and 1900. It came in from Germany with German rationalism, where they, were, where they did no longer believe the Bible was the Word of God. The Old Testament was all unreliable. And so you see an, an influx. And uh, they began their attack in the seminaries because, they, because when the seminaries who trained the preachers, they would go into the churches and they would begin teaching liberal ideas to the churches. And you know what happens when new ideas come into a church. The old, the old, uh, <laughs> the seasoned saints, they say something stinks here, something is wrong, and they they would rise up. But these guys would just they would just keep on slogging along, you know, teaching their false doctrines. And then the generations would pass one one generation one generation passes off the scene, a younger generation comes in, and the church is going to decline. That's why you get to the twentieth century, almost all the mainline denominations begin to die because of liberalism. Only one mainline denomination recovered itself out of uh, the slide into liberalism. And that was the Southern Baptist Convention, believe it or not, in the resurgence of the 1970s and 80s, where they made a hard right turn back to Bible-believing Christianity. Up until the, and the reason for that was because in their, their seminaries had become so liberal. And just think about this. Year after year, there are graduating pastors who, when, they come, when it comes to what the Bible says, it's a big question mark. No certainty. No certainty. Now, the problem with certainty is sometimes is certainty can 
uh, what, what, when something stops, uh, when the water stops flowing, what is it called? Uh, okay. no. <laughs> Stagnate. It stagnates the search for truth because people would rather be certain than know the truth. Uh, Mark Lowry, who is a Christian singer and also kind of a comedian, he would say that fundamental Baptist preachers, they don't know everything, but they're never in doubt. <laughs> so uh, people like to be certain about things. And so fundamentalism um, was, a, was a return back to Christianity. And that's why there's a lot of overlap. And Christianity is a lot bigger than one individual church in one little town someplace. It's, it's very broad. And there's a lot of overlap between us and other Christian groups. Now, this version of our statement of faith is design, designed for teaching and informing prospective members and current members of what the confession uh, says. I have I've worked this over. If there's footnotes, I added them. If there are words added with brackets, I added them just for ex, ex, for explanatory 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 reasons. A bracket. Yeah, just a bracket. No, a parenthesis is like this. A bracket is square. So it's in brackets, I added it. And then uh, there's footnotes in there. Any questions along the way, just uh, just ask. Uh, this way of uh, stating doctrines is an old method used by all forms of Christianity since the beginning of God's of God dealing with people, going all the way back to the Apostles' Creed, which Apostles' Creed is the, the, the 400s or the 5th century. And there's that That's debatable. People debate about this all the time. Scriptures. Scriptures. We believe that the Holy Bible is written by men controlled by the Holy Spirit, that it has truth without admixture of error for its matter. Therefore, it is and shall remain to the end of the age the only complete and final revelation of the will of God to man, the true center of Christian union, and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. By the Holy Bible, we mean that collection of 66 books from Genesis to Revelation, which as originally written does not merely contain and convey the word of God, but is the very word of God. <clears throat> by inspiration, we mean that the books of the Bible were written by holy men of old as they were moved by the Holy Spirit in such a definite way that their writings were supernaturally inspired and free from error as no other writings have been ever have been have ever been or ever will be inspired. This is our statement about the scriptures. Now we'll go back to that first paragraph under section one, and we'll look at the word controlled by the Holy Spirit, controlled by the Holy Spirit. And we'll turn our Bibles to 2 Timothy 3.16, and we'll read what Paul says. He's telling Timothy, Timothy is a pastor, and Timothy is going through a hard time. He's pastoring the church at Ephesus. Very difficult time in Timothy's life. And he's going to tell Timothy to lay himself, to entrust himself to God's word. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture. In the NIV it says, is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul wants Timothy to know that the word of God can be relied upon. It can be trusted. It, it, has, it has come from God. 
Now, the NIV says God breathed. Most of the newer translations, I think, do say God breathed. In the, the old authorized version, it says inspired. Inspired. Jay Adams said the word should probably be expired <laughs> by God because it means to breathe out. It's something expressed from God. And so the words of God are from him. And God controlled the writers by the Holy Spirit. Now, the, in the explanatory section, it says, by inspiration, it says, we mean the books of the Bible written by men of, by holy men of old, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit in such a definite way that their writings were supernaturally inspired and free from error. So these guys, they wrote down the words that God wanted them to write down. Sometimes people say, well, they wrote down the ideas. Well, that's true, too. The ideas are expressed in words. But it was done in such a way. There's there's different views of inspiration. I believe in the kind of an organic view of inspiration. And that's because when the when these men wrote, they wrote in a way that God used the vocabulary that they possessed and wrote in their own style or their own voice. Have you ever gotten a letter from somebody and it has their name on it? You're like, I don't think they wrote that. It's not their voice. Or if you're like me, I write in a special font. <laughs> and so you, it, it's, it retains their, uh, their personality. For instance, if you read the Gospel of John, or uh, I brought a Greek, this is a Greek New Testament. This is UBS 5. This is the result. I'm going to say something more about that. But in the Gospel of John, John's Greek is very simple, very smooth, because and people people talk about that. Was John was John just so well read? Was he just that intelligent that he could write that way? What kind of education did he have? Most of the time, most of the time, we think the apostles were illiterate, uneducated men. John, however, was the son of a wealthy man who probably had better education than most. John writes very beautiful Greek. The apostle Peter, who is the oldest of the apostles, the only married guy of the apostles. And the most cantankerous <laughs> of the apostles, Peter's Greek is not that easy to read. Just reading the epistle of First and Second Peter in English can be difficult. And then you have Paul and his, uh, his long sentences. But you have to remember that in, in Greek, when they wrote them in Greek, they wrote without punctuation. They wrote without any space between the words. All the letters just jammed together on a page. It's quite a thing to see if you get a chance to look. You can look at you can look at you can look at those things online too. These uh, ancient text. So that that's how what I'm talking about is that it re, they retain their personality in the writing. So the Holy Spirit working with them, versus different views like mechanical dictation theory or kind of a robotic idea that God overpowered them. And they went into a trance and just writing it out. God working through them. And I'm not always sure that they knew that they were writing scripture, although Paul does say two times he knows he's writing scripture. And other apostles, Peter says, as Paul writes, as in other scripture. <clears throat> so Peter knows it where Paul is writing scripture. Had had a special, uh, a special anointing, let me use that terminology, a special touch on it. It read like scripture. When the early church is deciding which book should be in scripture, they would read the books. Now, I have here, this is, these are called the lost books, the lost books of the Bible and the forgotten books of Eden. And you may hear about, you got a question, Cindy? Yeah, 
Oh, Cindy, I thought Cindy. Had... No, that's okay. <laughs> I thought you were poised for. This is called the Lost Books of Eden. So if you look at the the little book of Jude, it talks about the prophecy of Enoch, and that's supposed to be lost. Oh, I, ha I have it right here. You can you can read about it. And then you have the not the apocryphal literature. You have the the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas, and you'll see these things pop up. If you go down to Walden Books, is Walden Books still around? Walden Books, uh, Books a Million or someplace like that, some big bookstore. Go to the religious section, you'll find the Gnostic Gospels and you can read them. And those were around in the Christian era. And the reason why Christians rejected them was because when they read them, they didn't read like Scripture. Just for example, in the Gospel of Peter, in the New Testament, the accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ are very kind of matter of fact. You know, the women, they went to the grave, they found the stone either rolled away in one account whether they feel the earthquake and the stone rolls away and they see angels, they talk to angels. And this is kind of, you know, impressive, but not really impressive. It's just kind of matter of fact. In the Gnostic Gospels, it says that the women got there, the stone rolled away and a cross floated out and the cross spoke and said, I am the cross. I bear witness that Jesus, the one who was here, was, was the same guy who was crucified on me. He gives this weird... A talk gives a mon a cross gives a monologue to the people. It just seems unusual, and so early Christians are using their discernment to discern between the true and the false. And these uh, books of the New Testament had an apostolic uh, uh, approval. Usually, they came from apostles. Uh, they 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 there's a kind of a sniff test or a smell test they had. So the scriptures were written by men controlled by the Holy Spirit. Yes, it it would it would be and I'll, and I'll, that's diff that's a little bit different though because the apocryphal literature is actually historical literature. It is it is true. Some of it is true. It's true historical accounts. You have what people are thinking and talking about. It's not inspired in a way that the Old New Testaments are inspired. And I'm going to talk about that in just a second because I brought uh, my copy of that uh, here. So, and then we have this statement. It's it's truth without admixture of error. And I come from a tradition where one translation ruled them all, right? The authorized version. This this is this this is the one. And the reason why I have this one is because this is a facsimile of the original stuff. And the reason I got this was because people always say, well, you don't really have a 1611, so I got one. <laughs> so I could just say, and, and to be honest with you, let me be honest with you. If you read, if I read this to you, when you look visually, it looks kooky. Do you have authorized version? No, not that one. No, but you have a King, have James? King James? So let's see, you got, okay, I'm going to turn to 2 Timothy 4. And I'm going to, I'm going to read this out loud. And you tell me if it sounds the same. Second Timothy four. Uh, I'm gonna start with verse one. Second Timothy four one. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers, 
having itching ears. Is that exactly the same as what you have? It is. It's exactly the same. As, because this is a the 1611 King James Version and all other King James Versions, they all read exactly the same. The only reason it, it'd be difficult to read, and I'll just I'll hand it over to Ron to look at, is you'll see you can see the font. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's Germanic type. The spelling is all is all out of whack. There's a lot of extra e's. It just it just looks differently. But how how it sounds is the same. There's no special pronunciation. It's a German. It's a Germanic kind of type because it was done. No. The ESV was very similar. Right. It's good to know. So what we just what we just discovered here, kind of, is that in in conservative Bible translations, the differences are not worth worrying about. They're very minor. You'll find different word orders sometimes. You may find a newer word versus an older word because there's lots of synonyms out there. So the tradition that I came from said that there's only one, and that has to be the, the way it is. There, there's no other options. But because if, the, if, anything, if there's any difference, it's wrong. If there's any difference, it has to be the same unbroken, unbroken line, uh, unbroken tradition of Scripture. What is that tradition Fear. It came from it came from fear, but it really emanates from um, a misunder a misunderstanding of well fear. So like there's there's a guy named Phil Pot in the uh, United States, a Presbyterian. Now I'm saying that name. I'm pretty sure it's Phil Pot, United States Presbyterian. When the new when the new translations come out, so everybody hates tradition. Everybody hates new stuff. Well, not everybody hates new stuff, but you know, they don't want to change anything. And so, as far back as the 1700s, there are other there are other translations of scripture being produced because they're they're finding new Greek manuscripts, and they're trying to they're trying to get it right. So in the eight in the 1800s, there's this idea that they should retranslate the New Testament with something that's based upon newer manuscripts. The more up-to-date information. Well, that's going to mean there's two Bibles. And Phil Pot says, "I fear the day when people will say, when they say the Word of God, that somebody will say which Word of God." So, for stand, they wanted a single standard, a single. Now, Phil Pot's a scholar, and the scholars understand that, that that's not really true. There's just one. There's there's lots of different New Testaments and uh, different variants. Um, Philpott talks about that. When you get into the, 18, the late 1800s, two guys named uh, Hort and Westcott, they're members of the Church of England, Anglican churchmen. They decide that they're going to redo the New Testament, the Greek New Testament. They don't really like the, the it's called the Texas Receptus, they're not really too keen on it. It hasn't been updated or edited. So they start working on it, and they produce a brand new New Testament. Uh, one of one of their main one of their main opponents is a guy named uh, uh, Dean Vergon. He is a he's a dean, of, a minister in the Church of England. Dean Vergon, these guys are he did, he does he agrees with them. We should update the Greek New Testament. 
but he didn't like the way they were doing it. And so he's because he doesn't like the way they're doing it, it starts a conflict with him. And even today, there's a society called the Dean Burgon Society, which is a King James only society. However, Dean Burgon would not join that society because he didn't he doesn't agree with the with that view. He believed that there should be an update to the Greek New Testament. But he said, if you're going to do it, you got to get everything. You have to get all of the extant Greek manuscripts and printed text, and you have to collate everything. These guys only wanted to use a portion. He says we have to do it all. And, of course, there's a lot of heat in that. And of course, these are a bunch of nerds <laughs> arguing about stuff. And so it comes – so when you get into the 20th century, you know, the new Bibles come out. The first, the first one is the RSV of 1881 that's that's in britain right and then there's there's not there's not a new bible in america till the asv 1901 now all of the all of the fundamentalist scholars all of them are are fine with the revised standard version and the american standard version they're all happy with it bh carroll uh who was a baptist born he was born before the civil war um He's the founder of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, B.H. Carroll. In his, uh, he was concerned about Baptist preachers that in order to go to seminary, you had to have an undergraduate education. And you really needed a classical education because to go to seminary, you had to know three languages. You had to know Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. And B.H. Carroll said, you know, uh, these guys, we, we need preachers. They don't, we don't have time to send them for this. We need an English-only course. And so he developed a course called the Interpretation of the English Bible. And it was a four-year course uh, of books, an English-only tract. And he says the ASV and the Revised Version are much to be preferred over the King James Version. And so, yeah, so there you go. That's that thinking. You get all the way up into the 60s. And then there is the, in the 60s, you start seeing more, more Bible translations come out. John MacArthur says that the abundance of Bible translations that were produced in the 60s, he says that was that was what starts the revival of his ministry. He said, you know, all these thousands of people being saved, it's new interest in, in the scriptures. And then you have the production of the NIV. In the background, there's always these people who don't like change. They're afraid of change, and they and they seize on on, on little things. And, and to be honest, Jim, there is there is so much to be said about this. I could just talk on and on and on about it, and I'm talking too long about it now. But it comes from fear. <laughs> it, it it comes from fear. They're afraid of change. So as a kid growing up, the NIV was the devil's Bible. I mean, the fact that I'm staying in the pulpit preaching from it is is, is the irony is not lost on me because I had I had this conversation. Valerie can tell you about it. Uh, I was talking. I was I was at lunch with a guy. A pa I was working for a pastor, a missionary is sitting over here, an evangelist, and we're we're talking, and we're talking about the King James Bible, and he said, "I know people use the NIV," and he said, "They are really Christians," and I said, "No, you don't know any NIV using Christians, because you can't be one to Christ without an NIV with an NIV, because has you have to be born again from a pure, incorruptible Word of God, not from a corrupted Bible like the NIV." So that, that's the thinking that I was taught. And so it's very strong. It's very strong. 
because you, um, based on misunderstandings. So that's the the pure word of God, the incredible word of God, is based on the idea. Well, it must be the written word, the logos, but it's not the logos. It's the ramos, the rhema word. It's Jesus. Jesus is who is giving us new life. We're not saved by faith in particular translation. And so there's so, but that's how you keep people in in the in the in the flock. It's fear. You make them afraid to go outside. Ideas scare people. And really, really one of the things that helped me was Erwin Lutzer's book, Seven Reasons Why You Can Touch You Can Trust the Bible. Because Lutzer says if you take all of the all of the manuscripts and all the Greek text and they you collate them and you look at the differences between them, the number of differences are either 0.3, three tenths of one percent or up to 5% of disagreement. So 95% accuracy, they agree 95% of the time, everything, that's NIV, King James, 95% of the time, they agree. Well, that's, that's overwhelming. No other book has that. No other book can you trace the manuscript tradition, the handwritten Greek stuff, all the way back to the third century, the second century sometimes. It's Yeah, it's a supernatural preservation. Now, it's not perfect. It's not like everything is exactly the same all the way through because that would be weird. That would be weird because it doesn't factor in human fallibility. So when we talk about admixture of error, there may be translational errors in the Bible. There may be words that are translated wrong. But there's nothing in the Bible that's a wrong idea or a wrong truth. Bart Ehrman, who is the leading critic of the New Testament, he wrote a famous book called Misquoting Jesus. He's written lots of books. Fascinating guy to talk to. I've never talked to him, but <laughs> to, to listen to. I have his book. Uh, I've listened to lots of his lectures. I've read some of his books. And uh, he is a critic of the New Testament. But he says, and he's a New Testament textual critic. His whole life's forgiven to study the New Testament. He says, there is. this is a non-Christian guy. No variant in the Greek tradition would result in any kind of change of fundamental Christian doctrine. There's no variant. That's a critic. That's a guy who could be saying, yeah, these are all wrong. It throws it all out of whack. But he's not. He's saying these, it's all, it's all the same. So you don't have to worry about these things. All this is just to say the scriptures are reliable. When you what you have in front of you, whatever translation it is, unless it's the message or the New World Translation or the Book of Mormon or some wacko <laughs> version like that. What you have in front of you is the is the product of hundreds of years, probably billions of man hours of careful, careful work to produce reliable translations. Dan Wallace says the New Testament textual tradition suffers from an embarrassment of riches. There are we talk about 5000 Greek manuscripts and copies of ancient text. It's 5000 copies, but the number of pages is in the millions because you don't just have you know bibles that people were were carrying around or you know sheaves of papers or scrolls you also have commentaries pastors are writing their sermons down or writing letters and quoting scripture it's a it's a rich and glorious rich and glorious tradition all that to say you can the bible is very reliable there's no errors in it for its matter there might be a mis maybe a mistranslation someplace What do you what do you what do you think the word that's most often there's there's two words that are often mistranslated in every Bible, two words. What do you think that they would be? 
They're always they're always wrong. In my opinion, it's the this is a transliteration, baptizo, and uh, ecclesia. Ecclesia is the word which we in our Bible is always church. Baptizo is always transliterated in English as baptism. But baptizo always means, it always means immerse. Always means immerse. In fact, in the, in the Greek tradition, when they would write about a ship going under, sinking, it's baptizoed. <laughs> of course, some smart aleck will say, well, bat- baptism is more than immersion. Immersion, it's also emergence. <laughs> because you go down and back up, right? But it's always that. It's always that. You, there is a Baptist translation out there. It's called the Landmark New Testament. And they translate baptize as immersed. And so he's not John the Baptist. He's John the immerser. <laughs> and then you have the word ecclesia, which is always translated as church. The reason why it's translated as church is because King James said it had to be translated church. When they translated the Bible into English, he, he gave a whole list of rules. He said, these are the rules that must be followed. And one of the rules he said was standard ecclesiastical terms must be followed. So that's why they were they never translate the word baptize. Ecclesia is always translated church. William Tyndale, he always translated it congregation. Because this comes from the Scottish word kirk, which is a building, church building. And Tyndale said, the church is not a building, it's people. So it was translated congregation. So when we talk about the church, like I'm going down, I tell Valor, I'm going down to the church. Well, I'm not really going to see you guys, am I, every day? I'm not going to see the people, I'm going to the building, the structure. And so these are, these are two that are always mistranslated. But it doesn't really change, I mean, doesn't, we don't really come into, out with the wrong conclusions, do we? Sometimes we do on this one, I think. <laughs> All right, so let's yakking about that. So the scriptures are reliable in general. Um, the uh, in the explanatory section it says sixty six books. The reason it says sixty six books is because the Catholic Bible has seventy two books in it. it. It retains the apocrypha, and the apocrypha. This is the in the old in the old Protestant Bibles. They always would put the Apocrypha between the Old and New Testaments to say, and that's that, because that's the time period in which it's written. It's written between the Malachi, which is uh, about four, uh, 495 BC, and the birth of Christ. So it's always stuck in between because that's where it goes in history. Now, Spurgeon was, was a fan of the Apocrypha. Spurgeon liked to read it because of its devotional nature. If you want to read it, I've, I've read it. Uh, only once, because it's like whipping yourself to read some stuff. You know, if you don't have to read it, why bother, right? So I read it one time just to say I could. My retention of it, very low, because I don't want to do it. But Spurgeon Spurgeon enjoyed it, and he cites it a lot of times in his sermons for its devotional matter. Now, the reason why Protestants do not accept the Apocrypha is because uh, it teaches some errant doctrines. So I'm going to read this to you. This is from Tobit, chapter 6. 
verse numbers, verses 5 through 8. This is about superstition. So the young man did as the angel commanded him. And when they had roasted the fish, they did eat it. Then they both went on their way till they drew near to uh, Ecbatane. Then the young man said to the angel, Brother Azarius, to what, uh, to what use is the heart and liver and the gall of the fish? And he said unto him, Touching the heart and the liver, if a devil or an evil spirit trouble any, we must make a smoke thereof before the man or the woman, and the party will, and the party shall be no more vexed. As for the gall, it is good to anoint a man that hath whiteness in his eyes, and he shall be healed. So this is a superstitious stuff, you know. And so there's another. This is from Second Maccabees chapter twelve, verses forty-three to forty-five. <clears throat> And when he had made a gathering throughout the company to the sum of 2,000 drachmas of silver, he took up an offering, this guy did, he sent it to Jerusalem to offer a sin offering, doing therein very well and honestly, in that he was mindful of the resurrection. For if he had not hoped that they that were slain should have risen again, it had been superfluous and vain to pray for the dead. And also in that he perceived that there was great favor laid up for those that died godly. It was in holy and good thought, whereupon he made a reconciliation for the dead that they might be delivered from sin. And that's, and that's the idea of praying for indulgences, trying to pay, pray people out of purgatory, that you can do some good for people after they've passed away. And so that's why you compare that with what Jesus says, what the apostles teach, what the Old Testament said. There, there's, no, there's no hint in Scripture about uh, any hope for those who passed away. You've either gone to rest or you've gone to judgment. And so that so, and there, there's more. There's more of those things. There's there's a lot of them. Um, anyway, that's that's why we that's why Protestants have set them apart. Catholics retain them. Uh, that's what part of the why, part of the part of the reason why they have some strange strange views. Inspiration. Let's read a couple more passages about scripture. Psalm one nineteen one hundred and sixty. Excuse me, Psalm 119, 160. This is David talking. Well, we don't know for sure that David wrote this Psalm 119, but I would say it was David. Psalm 160. All your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. Psalmist. And then let's read uh, Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. So God's word is true. God's word is fixed, not to be monkeyed with or altered with. And, th and that, that text there in Proverbs 30, verses 5 through 6, there's kind of a, a connected verse to it in Revelation. Revelation 22, verse 18, where John writes, I warn everyone who hears the words, the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, 
God will add to him the pledge described in this book. If anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. And this this text was used a lot when I was uh, in college and growing up to say that the new versions were bad because they were taking away, they were changing from the King James Version. And, that, and that's a frightening text to whip, to whip out on somebody. I mean, it really is striking. However, if we took Miss Nada's authorized version and this one and looked at them, we would see that there are some changes in spelling and format. This, this, this Bible has italicized words. Every italicized word in a Bible translation, uh, the NIV doesn't have italicized words. Uh, I don't think the ESV has italicized words. I don't think that the New American Standard it might have italicized words. I'm not sure. But italicized words are all added. They're all added. There's something that the translators add for continuity of thought or help. And so when, I, when, I, when a guy told me that, he said, you know, you're, you're always yakking about the King James Bible about not adding to or taking away. So without all those italicized words that you that the translators added, of course, my, my response was, well, those were added by inspiration. <laughs> and so that's the... They're added by the, by the translators themselves. But they, but they didn't mark them in this very often. The, the, italis, the marking out italicized words actually came later. And then you have verses and chapters. The Bible is written without verses and chapters. They didn't appear until you know, the mid-1500s. Okay, so that's about the Bible, the true God. The true God is important. We believe there is one and only one living and true God, an infinite, intelligent spirit, the maker and supreme ruler of heaven and earth, inexpressibly glorious in holiness, and worthy of all possible honor, confidence, and love. And then in the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, equal in every divine perfection, executing distinct but harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. Now, then you'll see section three is the Holy Spirit. We do not have in our confession a statement about Christology or the doctrine of Christ. It's kind of it's kind of mixed into the two. And, um, and probably something to, to think about adding at some point is a statement about Christ. You say, well, how could they leave out Jesus? Well, when this confession was was being written, there wasn't any debate about Christology at the time, obviously. <laughs> but, uh, confessions always re- reflect the attitude of the times. They're always responding to stuff, always responding to stuff. If you look at the, if you have the whole document that I emailed to you, at the very end, you'll see all those supplemental things about same-sex marriage, uh, same-sex attraction, transgenderism, creation you'll see expansions because those are things that we've had to address in the christian church in the last 15 years that were not part were not even on anybody's radar in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s so the true god uh, let's turn to oh, i'm going to give out this chart when you see the term godhead pass it around let's let you guys go that way with it when you see the term Godhead, that's that's synonymous with the Trinity. Synonymous with the Trinity. The God, Godhead is the term used in Scripture to describe uh, the Trinity. 
I put a footnote there. I'll just read the footnote to you. Godhead is synonymous with the term Trinity. The God of Scripture is triune, which means in this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word, or the Son, and Holy Spirit, undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite, without beginning, therefore but one God who is not divided. That's from the London Confession. And this little chart uh, I've given to you is it's, in, it's, uh, it's helpful to, to look at because you see that God is the central identity for the Jesus, the Father, and the Word. They're, they're all God. So in, in the Bible, it says, in the beginning, who created the heavens and the earth? It says God. You get to the New Testament, who does it say created the heavens and the earth? The Word, or Jesus. Then you have the Holy Spirit is attributed with it. So which is it? The God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit? Exactly. It's all of them. All of them. It's so, so that when they're doing things, they're all doing them together. Uh, Ephesians chapter, or Acts chapter 20, it says that Paul's talking to the, the elders of the church at Ephesus. And he says, God has made you overseers of the church. God has made you overseers of the church, which he hath purchased, that's authorized version, with his own blood. Does God have blood? Well, well you know, but who did? Jesus. Is Jesus God? Jesus is God. And so they're all, it's all attributed to the, the one, the unity of it. The unity of it. And so that's the central recognition. And so it helps us to relate to God in a, in a, in a helpful way. We're human beings. Even sometimes the way the, 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 the narrative aspect of Scripture is just so we can get our brains around it, so we can comprehend it. So you have the God is the Father. God is the Son. God is the Holy Spirit. But the Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Spirit. The, the Spirit is not the Son. They're not each other. They're three. James White's modern definition is this, is that there are three divine persons who share one divine essence. Three persons in one divine essence. And so um, this is an important doctrine because this is what distinguishes us from Judaism today. They don't believe in a Trinitarian God. Some people say that Jew, the Old Testament Jews did, did have a Trinitarian view of God, that they did believe in a Father, a Son, and a Spirit, because the word Elohim is plural. Three strong ones. So some people say that they did because of, of that terminology. I, I don't know if that's true or not. It, it's really it's really a good question. I, I don't know if they really understood the Trinity. Um, and the, the, now let's let's look at that Deuteronomy six. That that's that's a good thing to look at because. I went to Genesis 6, Deuteronomy 6. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Here in this text you have the Lord, the special name Yahweh, Jehovah, however you want to say it. 
the new all the everybody says Yahweh nowadays, but Jehovah is how I always heard it. The Lord, that's Yahweh. That's the covenant name of God. When God was to have covenant, He says, "This is my special name. This is how I identify myself." Our God. Now the word God there is Elohim. It's the it's the plural sense. So it's the three. So the Lord our gods. The Lord is one. Even there has kind of a trinitarian aspect to it. If you're looking for it. And so, so I'm not I'm not certain if I'm not certain if the Jews did understand the Trinity. Maybe they did. <laughs> I don't I don't know. It's a uh, uh, I know from the New Testament it's obvious. It's it's there. You can you can see it. Right. 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 In our image. Yep. That's a, that's the exact reasoning that John Gill uses in his treatise on the Trinity. Is he describes all that stuff, and he says that the Jews had some understanding of it. Did they have a full a full orbed understanding of it? I don't know. Gill says he doesn't know either, but it, at least the the traces of it were there. Now, sometimes people who say, "Ah, oh, you Trinitarians, you guys are polytheist." Because you believe in how many gods? No, we don't, Jim. <laughs> we, we believe in we believe in we believe in one God. But they say you they, they what they do. They say you have three gods because you have Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit, and they call you polytheists. Now we're not we're not polytheists. We're monotheists because these three are one. Eternally existing, working together, co-equal, co-eternal, all that kind of stuff. So, Jehovah's Witnesses call us polytheist, uh, but we're but we're not. the uh, The other view, we're monotheist. What are the other monotheistic religions? There's Christianity. There's two others. Islam. Mormonism, Mormonism is polytheistic. The other one is Judaism. What do these two have in common? Islam and Judaism. They both look to one guy as the, the head of the family. Abraham. So there's this monotheistic idea expressed. Now, the only, only one of those that are Trinitarian is Christianity. Because these two, these two both, both reject Jesus. Although Islam is kinder to Jesus than Judaism is, because they do say he was a prophet. So, Trinity, so this little this little chart. There's this is this is uh, from the Gospel Coalition. If you Google Trinity charts, you'll see this in other other forms. Uh, you'll see it, it's very old, but it's really a uh, it's a helpful thing to visualize how it works. Uh, famous. Famous modalist modalism are people who believe that there is one God, but he just appears in different modes as is needed. And the, and the most famous the most famous modalist is T.D. Jakes, but nobody knows T.D. Jakes is a modalist. Most of the time, Pentecostals are modalist. Not not I said, I said, that that's that's too broad of a statement. A certain sect of Pentecostalism of charismatic movement are called the oneness people, Jesus only. Usually, you'll see them represented by 
the United Pentecostal Church, UPC. We call them Jesus only. And you can always spot these people because they believe that you have to be, you have to put your faith in Christ, you have to be baptized, and you have to speak in tongues or you can't go to heaven. And your baptism has to be in the name of Jesus only. They don't do Father, Son, and Spirit. It's in the name of Jesus only. Now, in the, in the book of Acts, you will see people who are baptized, it says, in the name of the Lord. And that, that doesn't mean that they don't believe in the Trinity, because in Matthew 28, 19, it says, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But they have this one identity. So if you baptize somebody in, in Jesus' name, in the name of Jesus, it's not it's not a denunciation of it. Uh, There's all kinds of things to say about that, but I don't want to slide off in the ditch. That kind of stuff. I don't know about examples of Trinitarianism is really modalism. You know, when we talk about the egg, or when we talk about the fluid filter, or when we talk about, you know, water, gas, and steam, yeah, that's mostly, that's basically modalism. It is. And, it, it's, it's, and, and that's the easiest to get our brain around. Yeah, and but God, God is uh, He's not He's not like us. Now here, now here's a question. What do you guys think about it? Because you want to think about essential beliefs, essential Christian beliefs. What do you have to believe to go to heaven? Do you? When I became a Christian, I didn't know what the Trinity was. I mean, I I, I would have had some idea, I guess, because I heard all, I heard them all talked about, but I didn't know about the Trinity when I put my faith in Christ. How much does a person have to know theologically to go to heaven? There's a difference between ignorance and rejection of truth. And, and e even then, we have to be careful about saying, well, if you, I've told you a hundred times, Ron, when are you going to change your mind? Well, you're not going to change your mind? Well, you're not going to heaven. That's, that's not the way it works, is it? I'm sorry. He doesn't know anything. All he knows, to quote Alistair Begg, all he knows is a man on the other cross told me I could come in. <laughs> that's 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 all he knows. So you're not we're not saved by knowledge, we're saved by faith in Christ. And sometimes it takes people a long time to get it through their head. I know a preacher who used to believe you could only be saved through a King James Bible, and believed it for years and years and years. But now pastors a church where he preaches from the NIV. <laughs> so I mean, <laughs> he's a wonderful guy. <laughs> Did you have something to say, Rob? So, so, so things people change, and it, it takes a long time to come to the right understanding sometimes of things, and so uh, we're more mature. How do you want to say? It? So, some of the creeds do say. Well, that, those usually those the, the churches that have that that strict of a creed are are also pedo Baptist. The Nicene Creed definitely created by pedo Baptist. Those are all Catholics. These you'll find because in the pedo Baptist world, you're bringing your you're bringing your kid into the faith 
He doesn't know anything. You're bringing your kid into the visible church on their behalf, right? And so now the church and the parents in covenant together are saying we're going to raise that kid in the faith. And they're all going to work together to teach that kid Christian doctrine. And normally, about sixth grade, 12 years old, the kid's going to make a, their own profession of faith or confirmation. Sometimes the church, they schedule it and say, you know, when you're in sixth grade, you got to go to the catechism classes, and they start getting you all squared away. And you're going to believe these things. If the kid, after, after catechism classes, if the kid says, I don't believe that, well, <laughs> they're, going to, they're not going to be a part of the church. They can't take communion anyway. So usually the stricter that these people are very strict in my, in my, in my experience, not experience, <laughs> all my experience is academic. <laughs> this is what I, just what I read from talking, talking to them about it. Um, again, again, there's a difference between not understanding and not re and rejection. Remember what Paul says in Romans for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. If you're not sure don't let somebody force you into believing something just because you're not sure. You got you to kick it around sometimes. You got you to chew it over and think about these things, you know. So the true God, he's worthy of all honor. Exodus 20, verses 2 through 3 in the law, he says, I am the one and only God. Don't worship anyone else but me. Let's, I'm marked here to turn to Ephesians 4, 6. Ephesians 4, 6. These are the, if you have a Schofield Bible, it'll say the seven unities of the Spirit. There's one body, one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. The unity of the Spirit, unity of God. Uh, let's see what else I have marked. Let's see. Matthew 28, 19, you have the Trinitarian formula. Now, 1 John 5, 7, I, put, I didn't say anything about this on Monday night, but I'll talk about it tonight because it's, it's worth thinking about. 1 John 5, 7, in the NIV, it says, For there are three that testify. Now, in uh, Sister Data's a copy of God's Word, it says, There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word and the Spirit. Is that right? And that's called the the Johannine comma. Usually, before the new translations, 1 John 5, 7 was the pinnacle, the proof, the proof text for Trinitarianism. Because it says plain. There are, there are three, the Word, the Father, and the Spirit, and these three are one. The only problem was the Johannine comma has been proved to be spurious and has been taken out of all the all the modern versions. All all the all the newer Greek texts also, they all take them out. And the reason why they took them out was because Erasmus, who gave us our first our first printed printed on a printing press, Greek text. When he did his first Greek edition, he left it out because it wasn't in the text he was working from. It wasn't part of the, the manuscript tradition. Somebody said, "Hey, you got to stick it in there." He said, "Well, if you can find, if you can, if you can come up with a Greek manuscript for the the Epistle of John that uh, 
has that in there. I'll print it. Guess what he found on his doorstep? Not short, not long after. <laughs> and so he, he stuck it in there, and it became it became part became part of the textual tradition until the 20th century. And then they decided, well, there's so there's there's such a there's not that that there's not a lot of support for it, so they took it out. There are three that bear record in heaven: the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. And these three are one. See what you have. You have. See, you have verse five. See, you're getting verse seven is normally longer. Yeah, in the if you have a the old King James, verse seven is about seven or eight words longer. They just they delete the last phrase of that. You're, you're, it's and the reason I mention it is, it's in your it's in the proof text for our confession of faith. It's in there, First John five seven, but unless it's unless it's derived from the authorized version, it's meaningless. It's meaningless. It has, it has, it has no weight. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I put a circle around it. Philippians Philippians two five and six talks about Jesus and that He is the. This this is actually a great reading. There's so many great readings in the scripture. <laughs> Philippians 2, 5 through 6. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be, authorized version says, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. It wasn't something he had to grasp for or cling for or dive for like the devil did. It was his already. This is who he was coming down into the, into the world. So that's the true God. Then we have, there's no statement about Christ. Um, so we go right to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a divine person. And this is important because the, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they teach that the Spirit is not a person, but he's a force. Can you guys think of it a of an illustration from modern popular culture that talks about the force? <laughs> Star Wars, right? Yeah. And so they have this power, this force that they use. And this is how Jehovah's Witnesses describe the Holy Spirit. Because they do not believe in the Trinity. They believe that Jesus was created and the Holy Spirit is also created. And they're just weapons that God wields, right? So um, he's a person. Holy Spirit is also equal with the Father and God the Son. He's of the same nature. He was active in creation. In relation to the unbelieving world, he restrains the evil one until God's purpose is fulfilled. Let's turn to that. That's uh, 2 Thessalonians, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, 2-7. 2 Thessalonians 2-7. 2 Thessalonians, I'm sorry. 2 Thessalonians 2-7. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. This is the 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 powers that oppose God. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And the one 
who does it is the Holy Spirit. And um, it's always attributed to the Holy Spirit. And the authorized verse says, he that now letteth will let until he is taken out of the way. <laughs> he, that, he that hinders. So the Holy Spirit, he's restraining the world from their iniquitous pursuits. And this is something to really think about. The world we live in is a mess right now. People are doing all kinds of wickedness. But yet, who is here throwing the brakes on? The Holy Spirit. He remembered John 15. He reproves the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment to come. He is working in every person. So we got we got Putin over there doing doing his bad stuff. He could be doing a lot worse. How come he hasn't mashed a button already and said, "Let's fry America"? Say, well, because he knows the consequences, the repercussions. He's just making noise. He's trying to to show, trying to assert himself, trying to restore the old Russian superpowers. Could be true. But was but what is holding him back? It's the Holy Spirit. Of course, you got to think of the other side of that. Well, does that mean that when really bad things happen, that the Holy Spirit permits that to happen? That that is also true. That's also true. So there's a the Holy Spirit. He's working in the world, and the reason why the confession highlights that is to show His power. So we can, and also helps us as Christians to trust the Holy Spirit. Trust the Holy Spirit. So I got five kids, right? And uh, every day, the oldest three, you know, they, they get, Lauren, Lauren lives in Oklahoma, Mitchell lives here, Les, Les lives here. But those three are the most dangerous because they got money and they got transportation. <laughs> <laughs> and and, I'll, and, and I'll, you let them go, you know? What, what are they doing? This, this is the thing you ask yourself a lot as a parent. Now, now you have cell phones, you, kind of, you can track them if you want to and see where they're at. But then when you see where they're at, you go, what are they doing there? <laughs> it's almost worse than, than not knowing, you know? So you have to trust the Holy Spirit to work in them. So like for my parents, they do the same thing for me. 16, 16 years old, pocket full of money and a car, you know, you have to... I was a Christian. They had to trust me as the Holy Spirit. Trusting the Holy Spirit to do what we can't do. Sometimes we become kind of control freaks. We gotta, we gotta take hold of this. I gotta do something here. I really gotta. It's, up, it's all up to me. Well, it's not all up to us. The Holy Spirit, He, He is working. He is working ways we don't understand. And He's doing. He, He, He can do anything. He's not limited. He's all powerful. Doing what God has, what God wants him to do. Said so he can fix. He convicts of sin and judgment. He bears witness to the truth of the gospel in preaching and testimony. This is what causes people to, to, accept it as true. As he bears witness, he's working, in us as individuals, um, working in congregations. He is the agent in the new birth, and this is I put a footnote for this because this is often, this word is. Often misunderstood. Agent is a person or thing that takes an active role or produces a specified effect. It is the Holy Spirit who births us into the kingdom of God. John 3, 5 through 8. It says that the Spirit, uh, Jesus says, Nicodemus, you got to be born again. Nicodemus says, how can it happen? 
Jesus says, unless you're born of water and of the Spirit, you can't hear the kingdom of God. You can't see the kingdom of God. So the Holy Spirit has to do this illuminating work. Now, this, this illuminating work um, it doesn't, doesn't, it's not like a, a lightning strike. Um, birth. Oh, birth. Birth is not the beginning of life, though, is it? <laughs> life begins when? I've never been pregnant. But Valerie has. And uh, a couple times it surprised her that she was pregnant. <laughs> she said, Terry, guess what? <laughs> We're having a baby. Because when did she find that out? Usually. For sure, eight weeks, about. But usually, after that 28-day number came past and there wasn't, the natural cycles were not kicking in, what's going on here? Something Now, how long was she pregnant? Right there. How long until she knew about it? Well, Right here, but for sure, by here. It takes time. Now, in my own opinion, this is how the new birth works, too. Because a person has to go through cognitive stages of understanding. Cognitive stages of understanding. Now, usually what happens is you have, you hear, you hear, this, you hear the gospel, and there's a realization that takes place. A realization is kind of like an epiphany. Now, why is this, you know, why is this mattering to me now? Why am I thinking about this now? What's going on here? Realization. And then there's often followed by rejection. Now, I can't be true. Can't be. I don't really need Jesus. Am I really that bad? Am I really, is it really a problem? And then there's rejection. Then there's acceptance. Okay. I'm not as good as I thought I was. So then there's reform, reformation. I'm going to try to be a better person. I'm going to try to clean up my act. And what do you find out when you go when you try to reform yourself? What do you find? Uh, I can't do it, man. <laughs> I'm toast. And then there's filthiness. Start to feel filthy. Not not and not because somebody has made me feel that way, but because the spirit is showing me my unrighteousness. And then once you feel filthy, it causes you to repent. Not of individual things. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says that sometimes people, sinners, get consumed with one sin. And I was trying to work on that one sin. If I could just, if I could just get over my gambling or my addiction or whatever it is, if I could just get that one sin. Lloyd-Jones says people fixate on the one sin, but it's not the one sin. It's that you are sinful. Your whole being is tainted by it. This is where repentance comes in. And then there's faith. Because when you begin to feel filthy, filthy, you realize that all your efforts are futile. And you, 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 start, you, you start back here, the Holy Spirit ringing the bell at your house. And he's working in you. And I, I, would be, I wouldn't be surprised if for some of us, you didn't go through almost a similar thing. Just, it's, it's not, 
bam all the time. Now, have you guys ever seen Monk? Detective show Monk? Ever seen that? One time in one episode, uh, Monk, uh, he's trying to get his he's trying to get his badge back to be reinstated, and uh, he finally finds out they're not going to do it, and so he starts going through the five stages of grief, and he goes through them in about a twenty foot walk, <laughs> and it's funny every you know what's happening everybody everybody can see him going through the stages do 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 until finally he's moved on. <laughs> and sometimes all those things happen pretty quickly but not not every time not every time so but who who is who is the guiding light who's the initiator and in all those things it's the holy spirit he's working he's working and so uh it's a long slow process which brings us to the last thing about the holy spirit there's the things he does. He seals us, baptizes, endues, guides, teaches, witnesses, sanctifies, and helps the believer. And this last sentence, tell me why you think it's added. We believe that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is the evidence of his indwelling rather than the speaking in tongues and other spectacular demonstrations. Why do you think that was added? <laughs> Mike is true. Mike is correct. It's added because of the, the, because uh, you don't find this in the old confessions. It's added because of the the, the charismatic renewal or revival, whatever you want to call it. And so, because some some of those groups say this is the evidence of having the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues and these other spectacular demonstrations. Now, the fruits of the Spirit, these things take longer to be evident. One of my dad's old buddies said, the best time to count your converts is five years later. But it takes a while to know if a person is saved. Remember, don't forget the parable of the soils in Mark 4, Matthew 12. The seed hits the soil, stuff starts happening, right? Only one of those, only one of those soils, talk about saved people, there's all this initial stuff. You know, this is a, when I was a kid, preacher, preachers always we'd be we have revival meetings. You guys ever go to revival meetings? You guys, you guys ever grow up with those? <clears throat> At a revival, revival meetings or camp meetings? Cause you, that's where you invite your friends. You know, you ever you guys ever go to pack a pew, pack a pew night of a revival meeting? You know, you get your friends to come, and you would pack a pew, and you know, and you pack as many people in the pew as you could. And you know, whoever had the most people packed in their pew or two or three pews. And they'll give the they'll give a prize a lot of times, you know, give you a gift certificate to a restaurant or a new Bible, all kinds of. Oh, really, you never lived. <laughs> Maybe friend night, you know, or pizza night, and just all this stuff to get people to come, to come, and we would get people to come to church, and the, the pastor would give a very. Uh, usually, it wasn't the pastor; it was an evangelist, a professional speaker. Man, he'll give a real strong gospel appeal with. A sad song, you know, and dim lights, and just as I am until people came forth. Just all the stuff that people do to want to get people saved. And there's something really noble in that. There is something noble in wanting to see people come to Christ. And 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 Ari Tori said, um, he said it's better for you to lose your reputation 
and lose the respect of your fellow man and have a full church house than have an empty church and the respect of your community. There's, there's, <laughs> there's, there's something in that. It's a noble thing. And so we would see people come in and make professions of faith and they'd be on fire, right? On fire. But then after about two weeks, you know, the number goes down. Yeah. Yeah, what was it? What was it? Did you go to summer camp when you were a teenager? I would go to summer camp and I'd always get right with God on the very last day. You know, because I'm going to tell you why I got right with God on the last day. It's because psychologically I was de- I was destroyed. They kept me up late every night. We we played games every day, all day long. We sat through services. There were tear-jerking stories, powerful illustrations. I mean, by the time Friday got there, we didn't do we didn't do the bonfires that way. But I went to a, I went to a camp with a bonfire, and what, what, I didn't like it. <laughs> but I was just destroyed by the end of the week. I had no more willpower because it, because I had, and they would say, well, it's because you had no radio all week. There was no Garth Brooks and Joe Diffie all, all week. <laughs> There were no friends, no TV. All you've had is this. All you've had is you've just been force-fed God's word all week long, and you know, and this is this is why. If you could live like this all the time, then you'd be better off. Well, that's not true. You know, that's not the best. Not a work of the Holy Spirit. So, uh, yeah. So after youth camp, go home. They have testimony service. You get them to say, "Yeah, the Lord spoke in my heart at camp, and I decided to do this and this and this." And then you know, five weeks later. <laughs> Back to the same old way. So, right. And let, let's talk. Let's talk about that that example for a second because it's, it's interesting. Is on good soil. How long does it take for the seed to come up to good soil? A little bit slower than all the rest. A little bit slower than all the rest. Sometimes we get we get so focused on the on the springer uppers. Yeah. So it's a it's a it's a, it's a kind of helps us put in perspective our our service for the Lord and trusting the Holy Spirit and how He works, not to be so uh, addicted to right now stuff. Right now stuff. I mean. <clears throat> on the uh, cross of the burning after the uplifting and promised people's uh, faith told about, you know, uh, here you are uh, living on the mountaintop for uh, two or three days. Yep. And you live in the valley. Uh, so you got to take that, that spirit, that, uh, that initiative that you've got down into the valley. And it's hard to do that. It is hard. Because you. It's hard because you have to you have to maintain spiritual disciplines. You got to go home. I gave a sermon about this one time for a friend of mine. His church just had a revival, and they were they were walking on air when I went there. Man, preaching it was a I was preaching for him, and it was so easy to preach because they were all charged up. Man, anything you said was greeted with amen, just awesome. And I preached a sermon from Leviticus, very exciting passage of scripture. <laughs> About about the priest 
and they had to add wood to the burnt offerings. You had to keep putting a little log on the fire. <laughs> and you have to do these do these normal things. You got to read your Bible, you got to pray, you go to church and serve the Lord. Just keep doing these normal, normal things. And those persons who have really been stirred by the Holy Spirit, you know, they'll keep on doing those things. There's something enduring about it. Something enduring about it. That's a good observation. So, speaking in tongues. If you want to know more about speaking in tongues, First Corinthians 14. One of the most, one of the most incredible phenomena of the 20th century is the charismatic renewal, and one of the most divisive things too. Very divisive. Uh, but it was, you know, all these things have been dealt with in Scripture. First Corinthians 14 talks all about it. Gives you the rules for speaking in tongues. Who can? Who should? I'm a cessationist. I think the gift of tongues has ceased. Um, but I'll, I'll say, I'll, if you look at verse 39, First Corinthians 14, 39. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. This, this I think tongues has ceased. But there is a sense in which Paul says, Paul doesn't just say, hey, it ceased. Paul says, don't forbid to speak with tongues because you don't, you don't know. You don't know what's going on here. And so, um, I don't fall out with people over the gifts of the Holy Spirit, over speaking in tongues. I don't, I don't, I, I don't, I, one reason why I don't think, why I don't, I, I'm contrary to it is because, uh, So I've been in church services where the Holy Spirit was working in a way that he wasn't working in other church services. My dad would say it like this, you could cut it with a knife. It was just evident that there was something happening that wasn't happening normally. And I never saw anybody speak in tongues. I never, I never saw it. Not one time. Of course, I've been a Baptist my whole life. And in a Baptist church, you know, we don't speak in tongues. If it really was an overwhelming, spirit-led thing, because I saw people do things they were led by the Holy Spirit to do. I saw people come forward and say they want to give a word of testimony who would never say anything in church. Like, the Lord, I feel like I should say this. And it just, you know, <laughs> I'm a preacher today because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit led me to want to be a preacher. There's nothing I wanted to do less than be a preacher. So I know the Holy Spirit works in people. And if it's really an overwhelming thing, it never happened for us. But if you went across town to the Pentecostal church or my, the church my grandparents, my great-grandparents went to, they were Pentecostal. Man, they were talking in tongues nine to nothing over there. Because it was, it was expected over there. It was normative. You didn't really have church <laughs> unless, unless it happened. So I tend to think if it was, if it was actually in, in effect today, it will be kind of universal, but it's it's not, and so that those are uh, to quote the guy from the Shark Tank. <laughs> For those reasons, I'm out <laughs> uh, of the thing that tongues are ongoing myself. So, but I don't. I don't. I think you're. It's important to not forbid. You wanna? I, I, this, this this gives me pause. Paul says, "Do not forbid speaking in tongues." It would have been so easy for Paul just to tell him at Corinth, 
knock it off. Just stop doing it. But he doesn't. He gives them all these rules for speaking in tongues. Follow these rules. It was the apostolic age. Schaff, Philip Schaff in his church history, he says there are two stages to this. Schaff, Schaff writes in the 19th century. He says there is this stage at Pentecost, which is for evangelism. And then there's this stage at Corinth for the New Testament era, which is for edification. Now, Paul does say here that it's better to prophesy because people understand it. The tongues and tongues are tongues are tongues are not as not as preferred, but he doesn't forbid it. This 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 is why. Anyway, if, if I'm if I'm if I'm too conclusive about it, those are just my thoughts on it. We didn't have twenty just two tongues, just being interpreted. But I always felt that it was responsive to the spirit of the sun. We went to a church in Aruba, very Pentecostal church. John and I and Ben were from Hawaii and and then um So, so 1 Corinthians 14, 30, 33 says, As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. <laughs> so, so, so this is where you have this, this, the regulation of the scriptures. If you follow the rules, okay. If you're not following the rules, then it's a problem. And it's always... One of the, of course, you're, you're, I think, you gotta be careful not to, not to complete two different things. Is you have prophecy and tongues. They're not the same thing. So, tongues, things are, tongues are a sign. Prophecy is information. Information. Now, one of the reasons why you have the excess at Corinth is because speaking in ecstatic heavenly tongues was normative 
in the cults amongst the women. This is why there's a lot of attention given to the women's hair in 1 Corinthians. Because the women were supposed to be have their heads covered, right? In that culture, if a woman was married, she had her hair covered. If she was uh, immoral, she didn't cover her hair. This is her sign to the, <laughs> this is her apparel of a, of a harlot, Proverbs 7. So these women in the church at Corinth, they're coming in there. And, and every, every time you have new people come to your church, they bring what their past experience with them. They bring what they are, and they bring them in, good and bad. And so these, they're bringing in, and they see that tongues are there. They had tongues at their place, too. Tongues are there. And they would stand up, and they would give the sign that they were being filled with the Holy Spirit, which was wild gyrations. <laughs> and, their, and the coverings would fall off their hair. And they would get it to get attention. That's why Paul talks about modest apparel, because in that culture, the women would, you know, in the in the pagan cultures, the dress was not that at the going. Their worship was very sensual. The Christian church not so not not that way. And so the sign that they had the spirit were speaking in tongues. That's why Paul they're they're taking just like she did. They're taking over with this stuff, and um, so it's, it's, it was normative for them. These are but these are prophecy and tongues are two different things. Um, Well, they were interpreting the tongue, I guess. Yeah, well, they were interpreting the person, what they were saying and what they were saying. If they weren't uh, giving information. Well, let me, let me, let me, re, let me restate. Prophecy is new information, right? Tongues is old information. As I understand it, but, but that's why the interpreter is there. The interpreter says the tongue means this and, and has to be in the context of what we already know. It's a, that's a sign, right? It's a sign. And, it, and uh, Schaff's, Schaff's voice is in my head about that. I, because he, he says that this is different. This tongue is different. It's not the tongues of Pentecost. Because Pentecost was getting the word to everybody. Everybody hears in, in, their, own, in, their, own, in their own language. So, Schaff's voice is in my head about that. So, I, and because he wrote before the charismatic renewal or revival, whatever you want to call it, I tend to go, eh, maybe. And then you have Martin Lloyd Jones. Martin Lloyd Jones, in the 60s, you know, he starts preaching in London in the 40s and 30s, actually. Goes through World War II preaching, and he sees, he sees the charismatic outpouring. And he says, this is the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit working. It's, it's revival. If you read John, I have Jonathan Edwards' book in there on the, his critique of the um, of the Great Awakening, because people were were ticked off about the excesses of that, the shouting, the crying, the wailing, the the gibberish, and, and Edwards says, well, some of this is the Holy Spirit. Some is probably not because there's always some fakers, but in the main, he says this is this is the work of God. So there's Anyway, those voices are in my head. Trying to, I, I don't, you know, it's just my, that's just my thinking about it. <laughs> I don't, I wish, I, I don't know, I don't know what's the, I don't know which is the right thing. I think, I think I'm a cessationist um, for myself, but I don't want to be the Lord of your conscience. 
for somebody else's conscience. I wouldn't pastor a church where people spoke in tongues. You would you would get out of the banks because you can't you can't control it. It's hard enough to control a church that doesn't have speaking tongues. <laughs> so if you add all that stuff in there, so uh, you follow the rules. This was this was one of the things with the the fallout with C.J. Mahaney and John MacArthur. C.J. Mahaney and Sovereign Grace Music. Those are Pentecostal Calvinists. In fact, if you listen to the T4G recording number three from their from the from the recording, uh, Bob Coughlin is leading the worship, and in their church, they had Holy Spirit inspired singing. So, a guy could be playing his guitar or his piano, and 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 give out a song inspired by the Holy Spirit, just impromptu. In the recording at T4G, the song I can't remember which song it is. But you hear Coughlin, he almost breaks into it. It's you, you can see, he, but he stops himself from going in, into that. Now, if he had been at a Covenant Church, C.J. Mahaney's church, he would have went into it, and everybody would have been would have been fine with it. But he restrains himself, which is a striking thing to me. That you know, the, the the spirit is can be controlled by the prophets, you know. But he almost does it, and I, every time I listen to it, I think, I wish, I wish he just went on because that that would have been a T4G to remember. Because <laughs> MacArthur was there, and that happened. So C.J. Mahaney, they're Reformed Pentecostals, and they say, you know, if you, they would they would follow the orders. They would follow First Corinthians. They speak in tongues. If somebody gave some gave a prophecy or a ministry in tongues, that was if there was no interpreter, they would do they would disregard it as a human affectation if there was an interpreter if the person said it was in accordance with scripture they would they would accept it if not they would discipline the person because the person obviously was not being controlled by the holy spirit it was a very very unique thing with macarthur and he you know, they fall out they don't you don't see you see macarthur preaching at wherever mahaney is you never see mahaney coming to where macarthur is at but it's a anyway all that stuff probably does no good to think about. But uh, First Corinthians, First Corinthians 13, 14 talks about the gifts of tongues. Um, anyway, any questions about any of that stuff? Anybody hate me? Good. Let's pray together.